This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. Welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Hannah Critchlow, and with Chris Smith. Hi, Chris. Hello, Hannah. And this week, why India and America are both launching probes to Mars within a few weeks of each other. We'll find out where the meteor that hit Russia in February came from. Plus, we're talking multiple sclerosis this week. What causes it? How the US TV show The West Wing offered hope for one sufferer and some new treatments that might mark a breakthrough in reversing the damage that's done by the disease. To get in touch with us, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Now, before we get stuck into the news, our scientific teaser for you to ponder on during the show this week is, if your brain were a light bulb, what wattage would it be? In other words, how fast does your brain burn off energy? Have a think about that one. Before we go any further, though, let's get stuck into the news. Hannah, what's been making scientific headlines for you this week? Well, I don't know if you, Chris, or everyone, all the listeners out there, were very excited on Tuesday night. There was lots of rockets going off into the sky and going bang. There was, um, on the other side of the world, in India, there was a rocket that was going off, which didn't fortunately go bang. Instead, it's actually just now out of Earth's orbit, and it's going on a nice little mission to Mars. And in two weeks' time, there's going to be another spacecraft, which will be leaving America's land, and again, heading off to Mars. So why, you may ask, is there so much traffic? that's on its way to this little red planet. Well, usually Mars and Earth orbit the Sun at different trajectories and um, sometimes these two planets are just 75 million kilometres apart and sometimes they're a lot further apart, they're 200 million kilometres apart. Just because of the way they they go around. Yeah, they they go around the Sun. And so in order to take advantage of the shorter distance, 75 million kilometres, both America and India have timed their launch window so that they can... um, 
land in Mars hopefully in September next year. What are both of these craft aiming to do when they get there? Well, they're going to be acting a little bit like sniffer dogs and they're going to be orbiting around Mars's atmosphere and um, sniffing out the atmosphere there and trying to figure out why it is that about four billion years ago there was some kind of catastrophic climate event, some kind of change that caused the atmosphere of Mars to become a lot thinner and a lot lower. Um, and we know this because if you look at Mars's surface, there's kind of dry riverbeds all over Mars's surface, which indicates that water used to be a liquid about four billion years ago. So these sniffer dog spacecraft are going to be um, taking little sniffs of the air there and I'm trying to figure out what happened four billion years ago in order to cause this change. When will they get to Mars? They think September next year. So it's almost a year mission. It's a long way, isn't it? Yeah, it's a long way. But just looking at the politics of this for a second, America, fine, they've got lots of money, NASA can afford this kind of thing, it's all about blue skies research or even red skies research in the case of Mars. But... Britain gives India £200 million in aid per year. This has cost India, I think the figure I've seen is 75 million quid to send this probe. And one person I heard commenting on this week said, this country, half the population haven't even got a toilet. I mean, where do you sit on that? Do you think they should be spending that much money sending a probe to look at a planet that no one in India has a prospect of ever visiting? Personally, I think maybe they should be investing the money in infrastructure the country. I've visited India quite a few times and it's a beautiful country but um, yeah maybe they should be investing their money in another way. Because the flip side of the coin that was also put to me was that countries like India need to safeguard their economic future and actually being at the forefront of this sort of technological race means that they're scientifically very valid and technologically very valid and therefore actually this is the very thing they do need to be investing in in order to safeguard the progression of the country and give everyone a toilet ultimately. There's that side of the argument too, yeah. Well, let's stick with space because uh, it's also been a pretty important week because there's been a whole slew of papers about this meteor that came in over Russia in February. If you remember, the day after Valentine's Day, Chelyabinsk, which is a pretty big city in Russia, was the place that was impacted by this object that came slamming in from the sky. And I think something like 1,600 people were injured in this, largely by broken glass, because there was a huge sonic boom or series of booms and shockwaves that went across the sky, took out windows. And the one thing about this is that for the first time, there were lots of people with lots of cameras watching it all. And also for the first time, scientists have begun to use that data. And there's a paper in Nature this week. It's actually by Lucas Sherbany, who's at the Academy of Sciences in the Czech Republic. And they have taken 15 of these videos that were published onto the internet. And what they've done with them is to analyse the data in the videos to work out what this object was, where it came from, how fast, and they've post-mortemed it as it went through the atmosphere. It's amazing, this. So the way they did it was to take the videos and then look for stars which are visible in the video footage and then use where those stars are relative to the camera to work out, therefore, what the trajectory of the meteor must have been. And they put all this together and then used the soundtrack from those videos to work out when the sonic booms were corresponding to the thing breaking itself to pieces. Oh, that's a wonderful piece of citizen science. So it was just people taking uh, videos with their mobile phones of this meteor landing and going through the sky. And cars. And, and so the timeline is that this thing arrives on the morning of the 15th of February. It's doing 19 kilometres a second wow. when it comes in. 
And the first big breakup occurs about 30 or 40 kilometres up in the sky. And this object, which was originally about the size of a house and probably weighed about 10 million tonnes, breaks up into 20 massive boulders, Mm -hmm. which each weigh about 10,000 tonnes. They make it down to about 22 kilometres above Earth's surface. And then there's this enormous disintegration event when the thing falls to pieces. And one single big item is left, and they think that's one big 500-tonne lump that's left, and then goes above Chelyabinsk and amazingly drops into a lake called Lake Chabarkal, about 70 kilometres away <laughs> to the west, and it leaves an eight-metre hole in the ice that's there. That's very lucky that it didn't land on a city. or yeah, it, so- it is, but it's amazing that it just managed to hit this lake, having come in from space at 19 kilometres a second. But what they've then done is to extrapolate what the trajectory of this thing is back to where it probably came from, and they think it's probably derived from an asteroid called 86039. And 86039 is a bigger object which they think probably got bashed into by something else dislodging this chunk of rock. Mm -hmm. And that chunk of rock then was nudged in various ways onto an earthbound course and then descended and we saw the shockwaves as a result. They think it came down with the power of about half a million tonnes of TNT in these blasts. Powerful stuff. Thanks, Chris. So this week, archaeologists in Queensland, Australia, have also found part of a fossil from an ancient platypus that was a metre long, so the modern-day platypus is only about a foot long. And archaeologists have already found the remains of many giant ancestors of modern creatures. So here's two modern-day giant animals, Simon Bishop and Matt Burnett, with this week's quick-fire science looking at why animals grew so big in the past. Giant animals are called megafauna. The definition of megafauna can include kangaroos and even humans, but historically much larger, stranger beasts have roamed the land. When the dinosaurs became extinct, previously small animals thrived. Mammals, birds and even fish grew massively to fill the niche. Perhaps the best-known example of extinct megafauna is the woolly mammoth. These huge elephant-like creatures roamed across North America, Europe and Asia during the last Ice Age, using fur to keep warm. Australia in particular has uncovered some impressive megafauna, including the Diprotodon, a wombat the size of a rhino, and Varanus priscus, a monitor lizard that grew up to 7 metres long. The decline of megafauna around the world often coincided with the arrival of humans. There were once four tons, six metre long sloths, but they met their end when humans colonised the Americas. It is suggested that humans hunted many of these large animals to extinction, but scientists also think that changes in climate may have contributed to their extinction. Humans used to be bigger too. Over the past 40,000 years, human body and brain size has decreased because of changes in diet and lifestyle, as we swapped hunting giant beasts to farming tamer, smaller ones. But present-day megafauna do exist. The blue whale is the largest animal to have ever lived, and there are between 10,000 and 25,000 alive today. At 30 metres in length, with a heart the size of a car and requiring 7 tonnes of food a day, the blue whale is a true leviathan. The second largest known animal to have lived, the dinosaur Argentinosaurus, was only half the weight of a blue whale. 
Matt Burnett and Simon Bishop. And you can get hold of all of our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at nakedscientists.com forward slash quickfire science. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with me, Hannah Critchlow. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, including to answer our teaser question. So if the human brain was a light bulb, what would its wattage be? So you can get in touch by tweeting at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now, there's more than just milk present in breast milk because it turns out that a hungry baby is actually gulping down millions of its mother's stem cells too. And this week, UWA scientist Fatini Hasiotu has published work in the journal PLOS One showing how the levels of these cells vary in breast milk. But do they survive in the baby? And what are they doing in the milk in the first place? So we've been examining stem cells in human milk. We find them in all the milk samples that we've analysed so far, which is hundreds and hundreds of them. And what we think is happening is that some of these stem cells come from the mother's breast tissue and some come from the mother's blood. So the question is how they get into the milk and what they do as soon as they're ingested by the baby. Are they viable? In other words, are they living cells? They're not just dead that have fallen out of the breast in the course of making the milk. They are very alive and uh, they are able to survive for quite a while in the milk. When we get freshly expressed breast milk from a mother and we isolate the cells and look at them under the microscope, in most of the cases you find a cell viability of more than 90%. So more than 90% of these cells are alive. Do you think they have a physiological role? In other words, do they do something for the developing baby? I do think so. And for something to be doing something, it needs to have been there for quite a while. So these cells have been there in evolutionary terms for many, many, many millions of years. How do you know that? The very early mammals, they also have cells in their milk. Every mammal has cells in their milk. So I think that is a proof that they've been there for quite a while. But when the baby eats the milk, it goes into the baby's stomach where there is acid and protein-digesting enzymes, pretty harsh environment. Do they survive that? Apparently some of them do, and we are doing a pretty cool experiment at the moment where we are trying to track these milk cells in mice. And what we see happening is that some of these cells stick to the walls of the stomach and then they infiltrate through the walls. So they pass through the walls of the stomach into the blood vessels and... That's probably something that happens very quickly so that these cells can survive. Gosh, so they go beyond the gastrointestinal system to other organs in the, in this case, mouse, but one presumes also therefore human. Certainly, yeah. And um, if you think about this, every day a baby ingests millions of these cells from the mother's milk. So there is a great chance that at least some of them make it to the blood circulation and then from the to different organs. Where do they go in the young animal when they're ingested? So far, it looks like they go to organs such as the thymus, liver, spleen, pancreas. And there's also evidence from previous studies that cells from milk go to the bone marrow. Those studies didn't really examine whether these were stem cells or not, but potentially some could have been stem cells. Do you know how long they survive for? Because obviously you can show they're getting in, but that's not the same thing as showing that they persist. We don't know that yet. 
but we are looking into it. And uh, I think that, that that would be the ultimate proof that they have a role, especially if they persist. But you can see that this exchange of cells between the mother and the offspring starting very early on, even from the utero environment, where we know that there is exchange of stem cells between the mother and the embryo. And these stem cells have been shown to persist both in the mother and in the embryo for many, many years after birth. So if this happens for these cells, why not for those cells that are exchanged or transferred to the offspring during breastfeeding? So what do you think they're doing? What could their role be? Of course, I'm speculating now. Um, They could secrete factors that facilitate the local development of those tissues early on. We know that these cells secrete very important growth factors because we get these cells from the milk and we grow them in culture, and they do secrete a number of important growth factors. They also make neurotrophins, which are very important for the brain development of the baby. Another um, very important factors that facilitate the development of the different tissues that we have. So that's indirect evidence that they may actually have a role in the development of the offspring. Do epidemiological studies looking at individuals that have or haven't been breastfed with subsequent outcomes, do they give you any clues as to what these cells might be doing? We only just found these cells. (laughs) So there are no epidemiological studies. But people have looked in the past at individuals who have been breastfed and then compared their outcome in terms of health and allergy and all that kind of thing with individuals who are not breastfed. So are there any trends there that might fit with what you think these cells might be doing? From an immunological perspective, you do see a lot of things happening in the breastfed babies, beneficial things that we do not see them in formula-fed babies. For example, breastfed babies don't really get allergies, whereas formula-fed babies do. Breastfed babies are protected from infections. So there are benefits, and these can be facilitated through biochemical factors, molecules in the milk, but also by the cells, immune cells, but also maybe the stem cells. So that's what we're trying to find out. What happens then if I drink unpasteurized cow's milk? You take live cow's milk stem cells and immune cells and other cells. What do the cells do in your body? I don't know. Maybe there is a way for these cow's stem cells to get into your blood and go into your tissues and stay there. And so you develop to be a cow, I guess, rather than a a man. So that's a very One wonders, yes, whether there might be some kind of what they call microchimerism with a cow. You end up with cow cells, unless obviously the baby's immune system kicks in and deals with them. But then if the baby has an immature immune system and it's fed cow's milk from birth one wonders whether cow cells do maybe persist. I definitely wouldn't do that in my baby. (laughs) Let me put it this way. New breed of cow human on the way. Thank you very much to Fatini Hasutu from the University of Western Australia. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Hannah Critchlow. Don't forget our quiz, which we're asking you this week. If the human brain were a light bulb, how much wattage would it have? Your speculations, please. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. Hannah.
So another news story that caught my eye this week, Chris. I was really startled to find out that as many as one in every six adults in some parts of the UK are being prescribed antidepressants at any one time. One in six. Really high figure, isn't it? Really high figure. And antidepressants like, for example, Prozac, which was developed in the 1970s, work by increasing the amount of this brain chemical called serotonin that's available in the brain. And serotonin is a lovely chemical and it can um, cause feelings of reward and pleasure. It can spark off those wonderful feelings. And so, obviously, if you increase the amount of serotonin in people that are depressed, that can help elevate their mood. But we don't really know exactly how antidepressants like serotonin affect the structure of brain cells, nerve cells. That is, until this week. So, scientists in Japan took some adult mice and they fed them for three weeks with a scaled-down amount of Prozac. And then they investigated their brains. And it turns out that these adult mice brains had actually reverted to a much more plastic, almost adolescent teenage brain state, where they had a higher number of new nerve cells that were being born in the hippocampus, which is this little area that's involved in learning and memory. And also, just behind the mice forehead, there's the prefrontal cortex. And there, there was an increased amount of a protein that marks for something called plasticity, which I'm struggling to say, which helps the brain to become flexible. So the scientists think that maybe antidepressants, if the same holds true for humans, that maybe these antidepressants are making the brain much more adolescent and flexible and plastic. And so it's kind of shifting the framework of the brain so that people that are depressed might then be able to see things in a new, more positive light. It's opening up that framework. So it makes them more receptive to the idea that they can be happy. It helps them to embrace things better than previously they got themselves locked into a mindset of feeling down. Yeah, exactly. So they may have had this circuitry, this map in their brain that was kind of seeing things in a negative way because of different experiences. And so it's kind of making the brain more plastic and more flexible so that it can possibly see the positive in in life. So does that mean that if we understand that mechanism, we could come up with a better drug than Prozac, which would have fewer side effects because you could home in just on this, how to make your brain embrace change more readily? Exactly. I mean, that's the idea because Prozac can cause some really significant side effects. For example, insomnia. I don't know about you, but if I haven't had enough sleep, I can sometimes be a bit grumpy. And also, some antidepressants can actually increase the risk of suicide. And that's because they don't just affect serotonin, they also affect other areas of the brain and different chemicals in the brain. So if we can find ways of reverting the brain to this more plastic state without using some of these dirty chemicals, then that, that might be a good thing. It would be a good thing. Well, sticking with the brain, there's a very interesting paper just come out in the journal eLife by Ikuma Adachi, who's a researcher at Kyoto University. And he's been looking at the question, why do we use phrases like, she's at the top of her game? He's in a very low point, or bargain basement prices. Why do we choose those sorts of stratified word choices to rank things in an order? And if you ask a linguist, they'll tell you that's because we have a linguistic framework, we have the words to put that concept into a sort of metaphorical state that that other people can understand. Whereas, you might ask the question, then, well, if we didn't have language, would we still do this? Well, how could you investigate that? Well, you could go to our nearest relatives, the chimpanzees, which also have a strong sensation of hierarchy. They have animals that they are subordinate to, they have animals that they are senior to. 
how do they conceptualise the world around them? And so he did the experiment, and what they've got is a whole bunch of chimpanzees. They've trained them to look at computer screens. They show them a picture of another chimp. Then they flash on a new screen, and they put two pictures of two chimps there. One the chimp will recognise from the previous screen, and one it doesn't. And it's been trained that when it sees the one it recognises, it's got to press a button. And they put the picture of the two chimps vertically one above the other. And when you flash up a picture of a chimp it's seen before that is senior to it, its boss, if you like, if it puts that picture at the top of the screen, the chimp sees it much more quickly than if it's at the bottom. And if the converse is the case, in other words, if you've got the animal having seen a picture of a chimp that is senior to itself, and then you flash it up with a picture of that junior chimp at the top of the screen, it takes much longer to see it. In other words, they must have the same kind of mental mapping for seniority vertically up and down that we do, and this suggests that it's nothing to do with language. We just use the phrases top of the tree, bargain basement, because we've got words to describe how our brain is organising this information. So we seem to have this evolved hierarchy structure system within our brains. How did they measure the chimpanzees' reactions? Just by timing. I mean, they got them to press a button and they knew when they showed them the pictures and they said, press the button as soon as they recognise the chimp they've seen before. And you give them a little reward every time they get it right and very quickly they catch on and then you start asking them these sorts of hard questions. Oh, fascinating. Thanks, Chris. And as always, you can find out more information, including the references for all of the papers we've discussed, on our website, which is at thenakedscientists.com forward slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Hannah Critchlow. And on to our main topic for the week now. Multiple sclerosis. It's a debilitating disease which affects more than two million people worldwide. It commonly strikes otherwise healthy individuals in their 20s and 30s. And the symptoms can include loss of sensation and difficulty moving. Many sufferers can become wheelchair-bound. To find out what it's like to have MS, I went to see someone who was diagnosed with the disease 10 years ago. I'm Anthony Dean. I was diagnosed with MS in 2003 after a year of symptoms that were kind of similar and kind of strange and I didn't really know what they were. I went to see my GP after having pins and needles in two fingers in my right hand, which went away after about a month. Three months later, I had pins and needles down my left arm. And then about six months after that, I lost sensation in the right-hand side of my body from the neck down. So I had no sense of touch, found it difficult to hold things, to use a knife and fork, work, typing was uh, difficult. And that's when I went to the GP, who then referred me on to Addenbrooke's to be checked over for MS. And that must have been quite terrifying to have experienced this almost paralysis. What happened once you were at Addenbrooke's hospital? went through a series of tests first, check my vision, check my balance, check my memory and sensation, touch. Then after that went back for a lumbar puncture and then after the results of the lumbar puncture that's when I got my diagnosis. And how long did it take until your final diagnosis? Um, from my first symptom which would have been 2002. I was diagnosed in July 2003, so just about a year from the first time it happened. But the first time it happened, I never told anyone, because to me it was just numbness in my fingers. I slept funny. I might have trapped a nerve, was what I told myself. When it happened the second time, I thought I trapped a nerve the second time. When it happened the third time, I thought, well, this is probably connected, and now it's probably time to go and see someone. And at this point, how was it affecting your life whilst you were waiting for the diagnosis? I was working at the time. It was more of an inconvenience. There was nothing that was stopping me from actually doing anything. 
at work I ended up working one-handed so I could use my left hand but my right hand really couldn't control a mouse I ended up typing with one finger on my right hand compared to using the whole of my left hand and driving a car was not impossible but there would have been times where looking back now perhaps I shouldn't have done it because I may not have felt that I had full control over the accelerator pedal but it wasn't too bad I was lucky in that sense I could continue doing everything that I normally did perhaps wasn't playing golf as I used to or playing snooker as I, I do but yeah everything else I could just about do. And how did you feel after you were diagnosed with MS all the way back in 2003? At first, to to hear a diagnosis like MS, it's a little bit startling. My only experience of MS or anyone with MS had actually been from the TV programme The West Wing. In the first series of it, it's revealed that essentially the American president has lied to the American public by saying he's had MS and he's been treated. In it, there's lots of questions over, is he capable to still be president? What happens if he has a relapse? Something which they actually spell out very clearly in the programme, that it's not a condition that will kill you. It's not something that is, you know, it will affect you in certain ways but it's not a life-threatening illness. So in it, he basically continues to be president for another seven years after that point. So I felt very comfortable on the back of that. Thanks to you, Anthony Dean from Cambridge. It's interesting, because he was talking about the West Wing and things like that, but someone else very famous who describes having had these same sorts of symptoms but knew what was happening to him because he was a medical student at the time. That was Michael Crichton, who wrote Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was one of the lucky ones, though, because he didn't get progression of his disease he just got an episode and uh, it luckily went away and didn't come back well that is lucky that is very fortunate well we just heard from Anthony a bit about what it's like to actually have the symptoms of multiple sclerosis but what's actually going on in a person's body when they've got those symptoms Alistair Compton is from the department of clinical neuroscience in Cambridge and he specializes in dealing with this disease hello Alistair good evening when someone has multiple sclerosis what is this disease Well, Anthony's gave a very clear account of the experience for a patient of attacks which come and go with good long periods in between in which the patient is entirely well. What he was describing was the patches of damage occurring from time to time in his brain and spinal cord. And in those patches, a number of different things are happening. There's inflammation There is some loss of the myelin sheath, which is found around most nerve fibres in the brain and the spinal cord. There's damage to the nerves themselves. There is sometimes some repair and remyelination, which we may hear about later. And there's scarring or sclerosis in those patches. So multiple sclerosis, lots of areas of scarring. And the problem has been to sort out what's driving that process, and how those different components fit together. What is causing the inflammation? Well, this has been debated for many years, and it's only really recently that I think most people would agree that inflammation is the primary process, the one that is driving the disease. And that comes from the circulation, from the lymphoid organs. It's not something which starts in the brain. What triggers it is complex, and we'll probably discuss later some of the ideas around the causation of this inflammation, this autoimmunity, which most people would now accept drives the disease. So the immune system, for some reason we don't quite understand, moves into the nervous system and begins to attack certain patches of the nervous system, but by no means all of it all at once. Yes, that's the idea. And when that consensus was reached of thinking 
then, of course, it did offer the possibility of trying out treatments which might stop the immunological, the inflammatory process, and so be useful for individuals who had the illness. But those ideas and the drugs which have been used really only started to come into play in the early 1990s. Since then, a number of drugs have been licensed and are used, and really multiple sclerosis has been a fantastic success story in terms of the menu of drugs which can be thought about and used by comparison with many of the other diseases of the nervous system that we as neurologists deal with on a daily basis. So it has been very successful, but of course there are still unmet needs and problems yet to be sorted. So the way that you chiefly tackle the disease is to try to damp down or turn off the immune response, at least temporarily, when it tries to flare up in order to stop it damaging the brain or spinal cord wherever it's damaging at that moment. Well, that's my approach, and I think most people would now agree that to tackle the immunological component is a very good way to start, both from theoretical reasons, from what we know about the mechanisms of the disease, and also empirically from seeing what actually happens to patients when that approach is taken. So all of the drugs that a neurologist can now think about using in people with multiple sclerosis are orientated around the immunological component. That's not to say that there aren't other aspects of the mechanism of the disease that we would like to deal with, neuroprotection, remyelination and repair that we may hear about, but at the moment the licensed drugs are addressing the immunological component because we think that is pivotal and driving everything forward. Is that what led you to try this fairly radical drug, Campath, which was invented here in Cambridge, which is a very potent way of removing the immune response, at least for a period of time, in some of your patients, like Anthony? Well, when we first thought about using that monoclonal antibody, Cambridge Pathology First Human, Campath 1H, the logic was that, yes, the disease is immunologically driven, but dealing with it once it's started and trying to unpick the events going on within the central nervous system was bound to be difficult. And so our hypothesis was to ask whether we could go back a step and get outside the nervous system and deal with the process before the cascade of events had really set in. So the opportunity arose to do that because Campath is a humanised monoclonal antibody which targets the CD52 antigen, which is present on all immune cells, T and B lymphocytes. It could be given by intravenous injection and there was every reason to expect that it would radically remove the immune system from the bloodstream and lymphoid organs and then subsequently allow a repopulation with new cells which we hoped would not bring back the old story of multiple sclerosis. And is that what you found? It is actually what we found and we had to learn a number of lessons. It's taken us 25 years to get to the European licence which was granted on the 17th of September this year. We learned many lessons along the way but we've ended up with clear evidence that the efficacy, in other words, the usefulness of the drug, is very high. However, 
as with many treatments in medicine, and multiple sclerosis is no exception, there is no free lunch. And so with the very high efficacy comes significant risks and hazards and inconvenience of having to have injections and to attend hospital and to take part in risk monitoring schemes. So just very briefly, in someone who has MS and, and it was progressing in them, you put them in your CAMPATH trial, what proportion of them are likely to achieve resolution of their disease like this and what sorts of side effects might they expect? Well, not quite. And we have to be careful with this word progression. So multiple sclerosis starts with episodes which come and go and then later, after some time, usually many years, those episodes dry up, reduce in frequency and are replaced by slow progression. We, in fact, began by treating people with progression, with advanced disease, who were already very disabled, And we learned after a number of years, seven or eight years, that this particular drug and all others are not useful in that situation, disappointingly. And so in 1999, we switched to treating the disease very early in people who were threatened by multiple sclerosis but were still relatively well. And it was that switch from treating the disease late to treating the disease early that was the crucial step. And now that we do that, the experience is very good for most patients. Alistair, thank you very much. Alistair Compston from the Department of Clinical Neuroscience in Cambridge. He's with us for the rest of the programme, so if you have any questions about MS or the trial he was discussing, you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Hannah. So, according to Alistair, the drug Campath offers hope to those people who have just been diagnosed with early-stage MS. But what do patients who have tried the drug actually think? Anthony Dean, who we heard from earlier in the programme, was put on the original trials for the drug. Well, when I was diagnosed in the first place, the first question I had was about what treatment was available. I'd done some research online, I'd Googled my symptoms, and I kind of had an idea of what I might be diagnosed with. But then on the back of it, I had looked up what would be available. Um, After speaking to the consultant, it became obvious there were two options to me. Either take the standard course of beta interferon, which would have been done by an injection, or I was offered to take part in a trial. My first question was, you know, how successful has the trial been so far and was told that early indicators were that it was proven to be very successful so I decided to go ahead with it in a sense take the gamble because I thought I had nothing else to lose I was invited back a couple of months later into hospital for five days of an infusion of Campath alongside steroids So you were diagnosed with MS and then three months later you started this Campath treatment and then that was one week duration of the treatment in hospital that's right. And that was all the treatment that I had in my first year. And what consequences were there of this treatment? The treatment itself wasn't too bad. I was in hospital being well looked after. I felt a little bit sick, I think mainly from the steroids more so than the actual treatment itself. Uh, on the back of it, though, there is a side effect known as the Campath rash. Essentially, you sort of break up in a reddish purpley kind of rash. But again, other than looking a bit like Barney Dinosaur, there's nothing actually wrong with you. It just looks a bit strange to people who don't know what, what you've been doing. And did you regain sensation in the left side of your body? It's not a matter of that it will give you back sensation. I, everything that I'd had, problems that I'd had in the past, had always come back. It's part of the relapsing remitting form of MS. It, it comes and then it goes again. So at the time, I wasn't actually suffering from any problems with MS. So I'd gone into hospital healthy and came out healthy. But since that point, I haven't had one symptom of MS. So how long have you been MS-free? That would be 
10 years, 10 years this week. And do you think that your diagnosis and then your subsequent treatment has changed your life in, in a tangible way that you, you might want to tell the listeners about? Um, I think it would be wrong to say that I've re-evaluated my life and seized the moment that's not the kind of person I am. One of the things on the back of it is that I started to take my fitness a bit more seriously. I took up running about five years ago and run half marathons, which is good fun. And last month, in fact, I did um, three half marathons in a month in order to raise uh, money for the Multiple Sclerosis Society. So, so far, I've raised about £2,500. Good on you. Anthony Dean, who's an MS sufferer in Cambridge, he was talking to Hannah. So, Campath offers some hope to multiple sclerosis sufferers, but might it be possible to entirely cure the disease in the future for all those that have MS? Steve Hauser is a neurologist at the University of California in San Francisco, and he joins us now. Hi there, Steve. Good evening. So MS can manifest itself either gradually or it can come on more suddenly, as we heard in Anthony's case. But how does this quite broad spectrum of the way that MS can work, how does this affect treatment and also management? Yes, this is a very important point that you've just made. MS, like other chronic autoimmune inflammations, rheumatoid arthritis, for example, can be a benign, almost trivial illness in some people and a very aggressive and life-changing illness in others. So the first important consideration is that the severity of MS is very broad. The second important point is that the important outcomes can play out not only over a year or two, but much more often over a decade or two or longer. And our experience with therapies generally involve just two years or at most three years of observation. So it's an inadequate window to really see the long-term outcomes that we all care so much about. For someone like Anthony, who began with numbness in a couple of fingers, we really want to know what the natural course is. We want to be able to predict the future in those individuals so that we can assess whether this will be a serious or a trivial problem and also how aggressively we would want to treat. Alistair was talking about the immune system kind of attacking the nervous system. Is that genetics that are involved in this? So, for example, did Anthony have a genetic predisposition to this immune system hyperactivity? Well, most likely he does. But in general, the genetic architecture of multiple sclerosis is quite complex. This is not a simple genetic disease as Huntington's disease is, for example, but is a problem where many different genes, most of which influence somehow the function of the immune system, work together to increase one's risk. However, most of the risk, we believe, is environmental. So this is a complex problem in which both genes and environment participate. And what type of environmental factors are involved? Well, we don't have a full understanding of those. We do believe that the disease has increased in frequency over the past hundred years, and that is certainly environmental and not genetic because our genes don't change enough over just a few generations to account for this. 
We believe that vitamin D insufficiency that most people in the Western world have chronically is part of the story. A healthier, cleaner environment, perhaps with later exposure to the Epstein-Barr virus, might be another part of the story. And then there are some other associations that may not be causal, but that are related to one's risk of multiple sclerosis, especially smoking. Thank you very much, Steve. So that was Steve Hauser from the University of California in San Francisco, and he'll be available later to answer some of the questions that we've had in from Twitter and also from Facebook. Thanks, Hannah. Now, MS has a pattern of remission and relapse, as we've been hearing, and this is because the disease flares up periodically, which causes some damage to the nervous system, which then slowly repairs itself. But it doesn't always completely fix the damage that's been done, and this can lead to some progressive worsening of the symptoms. But Luke Larson from the Scripps Research Institute in California has been looking for some drugs that might be able to stop and even reverse this. Hello, Luke. Hello. So tell us about the approach you've taken. So we've sort of heard MS is a disease which is associated with primary demyelination of axons, which leads to neural dysfunction. And as you've just described, the disease is characterized by relapsing and remitting phases, and ultimately we get progression of disease. And what's known is that during the remitting phases of disease, there's a population of stem cell-derived cells termed oligodendrocyte precursor cells, which are recruited to sites of injury and subsequently differentiate to a mature cell that can remyelinate a damaged axon. So just to translate this slightly, so you've got these stem cells sitting in the nervous system that are capable of giving rise to the same cells that make the myelin that gets attacked in the disease and which goes away during the the inflammation and that those stem cells can potentially give new cells to remyelinate and repair damage. Exactly right. And so what's known from looking at the chronic lesions of MS patients, the histopathology of those lesions, is that during the progressive phases of disease, there's still an abundant presence of this precursor cell. However, they're found to be in this intermediate halted state of differentiation, so they don't fully mature to a cell that can repair the damaged axon. So it's a bit like you're in the garage and you've got a car that needs repairing and there's all the spare parts there, but they're just not being put onto the vehicle. And so exactly. So what people have sort of proposed for the last decade is that an effective complementary approach to the treatment of MS in conjunction with immunosuppressive strategies as we've heard about would be to identify agents that can directly induce the differentiation of those precursor cells which are in this halted state of differentiation. So how did you approach that? How did you do it? The approach we've taken, which other people have proposed to do, is we used an unbiased high-throughput microscopy cell-based approach where we took primary cells from rat optic nerve and then developed assay conditions where we could mimic that halted differentiation and then screened against about 100,000 compounds to look for potential drug candidates that induce the differentiation to a myelin-basic protein-positive mature oligodendrocyte fate. Basically, you grow some cells in the dish that could make myelin if they were so inclined. You then chuck on up to 100,000 different chemicals. So in other words, you're doing this many, many times to see if any of those chemicals make those cells go back into a state where they want to make myelin. And then you can go, aha, that might be a potential drug to repair lesions in MS. Exactly, right. And so from this, we actually identified a number of compounds, several of which had not been characterized before, which belonged to a class of so-called neurotransmitter receptor modulating agents, which effectively induced OPC differentiation in vitro. And so we decided to fast-track the analysis of these compounds because a number of them are actually approved drugs, which are known to be centrally acting, i.e. they can get into the spinal cord of the brain. And so they had the potential for rapid progression to clinical development. What drugs did you find? 
the most efficacious compound we identified was an approved drug called benstropine, which is currently used for the treatment of Parkinson's disease. And using pharmacology, we have uh, determined that the activity of this compound is dependent on antagonism of a specific uh, neurotransmitter receptor, the muscarinic receptor. In other words, by blocking up that receptor, it makes the cells become active. Right, and that's, that's consistent with a, with a finding that was uh, reported by an Italian group last year where they showed that uh, activation of that receptor actually induces the proliferation and inhibits differentiation of this precursor cell. And have you got any evidence, at least in animals, if nothing else, that if you give this agent, that it can remedy the damage done in MS? Once we identified this compound and realized that it was an FDA-approved drug that would work in the central nervous system, we decided to evaluate it in vitro and in vivo using mouse models. So in vitro, we showed that we could, in fact, remyelinate existing axons in a co-culture experiment. And then we looked at the drug's activity in two mouse models of demyelination and remyelination. The first one is a, a relapsing, remitting model, inflammatory model of MS known as the PLP-induced EAE model. And we found that benzodiazepine had a dramatic effect at decreasing the clinical severity in this disease with efficacy that was comparable to or better than existing standard of care immunosuppressive drugs. And we then went on to look at it in an additional model, which is a non-inflammatory toxicity model known as the Cuprazone model. And again, we found that the, the drug had a dramatic effect on enhancing the rate of remyelination in vivo in the, in the mouse. Every reason to be positive then. Luke, thank you. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Hannah Critchlow. We're talking about multiple sclerosis. This week we have with us in the studio Professor Alistair Compton from Cambridge University. We also have Luke Lairson from the Scripps Institute and Steve Hauser, who's from UCSF. So one question that's come in from Facebook. David Bailey has been in touch and he's asking something that I'm quite interested to find out the answer to as well. Are there any similarities between multiple sclerosis and other neurodegenerative diseases such as dementia? The nervous system has got a limited number of ways in which it can complain, as it were, and progression is one of them. So many neurological diseases get worse over time. Sadly, that's why they have a poor reputation. There is a view now, and it's quite a popular view, that diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease that we were just hearing about are also inflammatory diseases. And I've been arguing earlier in the programme that multiple sclerosis is primarily an inflammatory disease. The crucial point here, Hannah, though, is whether... The inflammation that happens in Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, is a reaction to the damage that has already occurred, mm -hmm. something which amplifies the problem, or whether it is the primary driver. And multiple sclerosis, in my view, is a disease that is driven by inflammatory processes, not something in which these are just a reaction to another primary event. And we heard quite a few months ago now, um, we had Belinda Lennox from Oxford on air, and she was talking about some findings where the immune system was actually attacking proteins in the brain, and that was giving rise to psychosis as well. So the immune system could be involved in a lot of different disorders yeah. in the brain. So neuroimmunology, the discipline of studying immunology in the brain, is an emergency discipline. And one of the really exciting discoveries is that a number of diseases that previously were completely mysterious are in fact driven by antibodies or immunological processes directed against receptors and iron channels in the brain. A whole new class of diseases has been discovered of which psychosis is one. 
Thank you very much, Alistair. Chris Cooper has been in touch via Facebook. And again, Alistair, I think this one might be for you. He's asking whether MS is definitely an autoimmune problem. And he's asking whether Campath will actually work definitely in the long term. Well, well, he's asking a very sensible and a reasonable question, which is that it's all very well for medical scientists and doctors to promote particular treatments, but do these really work in the long term? Is the immunological hypothesis correct? I think that the problem is that it hasn't really been tested until recently, by which I mean that patients have not been treated at the right stage with drugs that really do the job. Now, in my view, but I would say this, Campath is a good way of testing the hypothesis. Uh, You've heard from Anthony Dean that 10 years on, he is normal running marathons and so on, and that's great. That's roughly the experience that we've had with most of the patients who we've treated. We've followed them or we've looked after them now for up to 14 years, and so far we are very encouraged, as are they, by the lack of any progress. Indeed, many of them are now better than they were when we began. So I think if you do the right experiment, if I can put it in those slightly hard terms, of using a drug that really works at the right stage of the illness, then you can see whether this is going to have a long-term effect. And so far, so good. Thank you very much, Alistair. Thank you, Hannah. Bridget is with us. Hello, Bridget. Hello. Go ahead. What would you like to ask the team? What it is is my husband got multiple sclerosis in his late teens and he was to go on to be a professional footballer but he used to be ever so good one week and he could do everything and then another week he couldn't run properly his feet, legs used to go together and it was awful to watch really we got married anyhow and he started to fade to fall down and that when he was 34 and we had three children at this stage and uh, he, he was diagnosed when he was 35. Well, the question is, is this hereditary for one thing? Let's first of all put that to Steve. We really do not understand why your husband developed multiple sclerosis. The wonderful progress that Professor Comston discussed earlier in this session really gives us hope that in the future we might understand MS in a simpler way. We know that genetics and our inheritance does predispose some of us more than others to developing MS, but MS is not a purely or even a predominantly hereditary disease. Thank you very much, Stephen. Alistair, have you got anything to add to this? Well, only really to reiterate what Steve has said, that knowing about the genetics of multiple sclerosis helps us as medical scientists to understand the nature of the problem, but it's not a cause for worry for individual people because the the risks to close relatives are very, very low, except in the one situation of an identical twin. But the genetics is about understanding what's going on, not about counselling or other applications. So say, for example, my grandma had multiple sclerosis. So what's the chance of me then developing multiple sclerosis compared to Chris, whose grandparent didn't? Well, I'm sorry to hear about your granny, Hannah, but it does mean that you are very slightly more likely than the average person to develop the illness. 
shall we say, one in 500 people will develop multiple sclerosis. And if you've got a first-degree relative who has or had the illness, then your individual risk is slightly increased. But it is still very low. And we have figures for the granddaughter of a woman who had the illness in life and you can be reassured that this risk is down at under 1%. Thank you, Alistair. Uh, Luke, Danny has got in touch on Facebook and he's saying, is it possible to regrow the myelin sheath around axons with stem cells? So, in other words, the stem cells that you're finding how to reactivate, have you got evidence that you can, in a human, remyelinate damaged nerves? With our drug, we don't have the in vivo human data, of course, yet. We'll need clinical evaluation for that. But there is in vitro and in vivo data, both in rodent and man, that these stem cells are capable of repairing damaged axons and remyelinating. So yes, there is data for that. Thanks ever so much, Luke. And Alistair, I believe that you've been working with someone who's also working on regrowing myelin sheath. Well, we we read Luke's work recently in the journal Nature with great interest, and it's really fantastic that there are now agents being identified albeit still in animal models, which have the potential to enhance remyelination. So as medical scientists, neurologists, we're very optimistic that molecules, drugs, if you like, will become available, which can help the body to repair itself, to improve, as we say, endogenous remyelination. And the anticholinergic drug that Luke discussed is one such, and there are others. So in our own university here in Cambridge, Robin Franklin has identified some molecules which are in the same general family of improving endogenous remyelination. I'm sure that these will gain in traction and make it to licenses in due course, but that will be a slow process. Well, we're fast running out of time, so I'd better give you the answer to our quiz this week. We were asking you, if your brain were a light bulb, what would its wattage be? The answer is about 20 watts, and Les in Over, who got in touch and says he's been listening with interest because he not only has got the quiz question right, but also happens to have MS, so he's found it very interesting. Thank you, Les. He said 20 watts. So your brain consumes about 20% of the oxygen you get through at any moment in time, and that's directly proportional to how much energy your metabolism is turning over. Your whole body's about 100 watts, so if your brain's 20% of your 100 watts, that means your brain's about 20 watts. Now, on the subject of hard-to-answer questions, we'd better catch up with what Hannah's been finding out for our question of the week. This week, we climb the Tower of Babel to get our brains round this. Hello there, my name is Esther, and I am calling from Madrid. I came back to Madrid to take care of my niece, Adriana. She is just one year old. Since then, I have spoken to her solely in English. So, my question is... Is it okay if I speak to her in English or I am delaying her learning? Thank you so much for your help. So, is it good to raise your baby bilingual? We turn to developmental linguist Professor Antonella Saracci from Edinburgh University. The short answer is yes, raising a baby to be bilingual certainly affects his brain for the better. Aha, but I'm sure I've heard raising a baby with two languages is actually bad for development, that they won't do quite so well at school. What is coming out of research is a completely different picture. Bilingual children tend to be better, for example, at understanding how language works in general, and so they pick up other languages more easily. They tend to learn to read earlier than monolingual children, 
they find it easier to appreciate that other people can have different perspectives and different points of view. And bilingual children also tend to be better at focusing attention and monitoring their own behaviour. So there are long-term benefits of being brought up bilingual, including, as published this week in the American Academy of Neurology, delayed onset of old-age dementia. So the bottom line for Esther. I would say, Esther, go for it. Try to speak English to your baby and to create many opportunities as possible for your child to hear English and to get engaged with English. Thanks, Antonella and Esther, for getting in touch with the question. We slickly squirt into our next question. Simon Ashby wrote in with this. In the base of my mouth, below my tongue, I am sometimes able to eject a very fine spray of saliva out of my mouth. I know I am not the only person able to do that, as a friend of mine could do this at will. He would lift and move his tongue and produce a fine jet of saliva that squirted from his mouth. The question is, why are we evolved to be able to do this? It's called gleeking, and it's pretty gross. But can you do it? And if so, why do you think it happens? That was disgusting. And if you think you know the answer, then please write to us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also go onto our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum, where you can see what other people are saying. That is it for this week, but thank you very much to our guests, Anthony Dean, Alistair Compton, Stephen Hauser and Luke Lairson. Thank you also to Hannah Critchlow for joining in, and the production this week was by Kate Lamble. You can join us next week when we'll discover the technologies that are used to restore everything from aeroplane parts to old Doctor Who episodes. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening.